I'm going to read, first of all, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, these words. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to His disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with Him, and He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, He said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, this hour might pass from Him. Abba, Father, He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he turned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you still asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Luke, the son of man, is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Amen. And then I'm going to read from the book of Hebrews. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. I'm reading from the end of chapter 4 through into, verse, into chapter 5. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and gone astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. For God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Amen. And thanks 
be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word and we come in the name of Jesus, we ask that You would pour Your Spirit on us, that we might be refreshed and renewed and increase in confidence in what You have done and given us. Amen. This image uh, sums up my week. Do you ever have one of those weeks? Well, let me tell you what got me off to a really bad start this week. Um, we had a meter reader come to read our electricity bill. <laughs> if that wasn't bad enough, the meter reader came out and made a mistake and coded the meter to the wrong meter. Anyway, a whole lot of technical stuff. The result of which was, a few days later, I got a bill for £1,800 for one week's electricity. Now, I know prices have gone up, but that was a bit much. But here's where it got really annoying. I couldn't get it fixed. I spent ages on the phone to the energy company, went round the loop of all the things you do, press three to be put on hold for 10 hours or whatever else it is, eventually spoke to someone who couldn't understand what I was on about and kept saying the reading's there and it's, it's right and I don't understand. And if, if you've got a problem paying your bill, sir, we can give you help with that. And, and when I said, the bill is wrong, and I eventually got quite annoyed, I was told, well, you can take it up with the gas or the electricity ombudsman and file a complaint with them. Well, you can imagine how frustrated I was. I went onto the website, and of course it says, if you want help, click this and do that, and you go around in a blooming circle for two hours. You been there? So at the end of it, I was angry, and I was frustrated, and all I wanted to do was speak to someone and be able to explain they'd made a mistake, and could they sort it, but nobody seemed to want to listen. I thought, can I not go and speak to a human being in the local gas electricity showroom, but their headquarters is in Bolton, or rather their nearest office is in Bolton and their headquarters is in Germany. You know, the frustration of that, when you're trying to get something done, but the agents that you are able to speak to seem remote and inaccessible, unsympathetic, and uncaring. And we've all been there. Does prayer sometimes feel a bit like that? As if you were banging on the door and nobody's listening, nobody's home. Does it sometimes feel when we're praying that God is remote, uninterested, inaccessible, and perhaps we fear unsympathetic? like you're stuck on hold until you just want to put the phone down. The letter to the Hebrews that we've been looking at was written to a group of Christians who were fed up. And they were fed up because it was tough being a Christian. They were having a hard time. They were being rejected by family and friends and community. They were being persecuted. And they were now at the point of giving up. We're given that image that we've referred to many times, that they were standing with drooping arms and weak knees, tripping over their feet. 
were told that some of them had stopped coming to church. They'd stopped attending the meetings. What was the point? I'm getting nothing out of it. I'm going nowhere. And I suspect this passage that we've read, that the background to it is that some of them are stopping praying. Or even if they are still praying, they're doing it because they feel they should, and it just seems that God's not listening. And I'll tell you, I don't believe there's any Christian at all who doesn't know exactly what I'm talking about. You are not alone. But here's a key verse in this passage. It says simply this, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Confidence as we come into God's presence. Now, in many ways, this verse seems a little counterintuitive because it's talking about thrones. And thrones, whatever else they are, are symbols that the person who's sitting on the throne is above you. They're literally sitting on a podium on a big chair saying, I'm different from you. And maybe I'll listen to you, but maybe I'll not. And in fact, very often, the person on the throne is demonstrating by everything that is in the room, I'm not your pal. I'm the king. And I don't know if you know the protocol. I was watching one of these things that was talking about how how the Duchess got it all wrong about what you're supposed to do when you enter the royal room. Because you're supposed to, as you enter the room, once you've been invited in, you're supposed to bow. And then you're supposed to walk halfway towards them and bow again. And then you're supposed to walk up to them and bow a third time. And then you're supposed to remember to call them your majesty, but only when they speak to you do you speak. And there's all these protocols around it. The last thing you would do is walk up boldly with confidence and say, hi, Charles, can we have a word? That's not what you do. The king is supposed to be distant. The king is supposed to be powerful. In fact, if you go to a medieval palace, you'll find a throne room. But what will you find before you find a throne room? Before the throne room, there's a presence chamber. Before there's a presence chamber, there's a grand hall. And before there's a grand hall, there's an entry hall. And the idea is that you might get a little bit near the king, but only if you're really, really special are you going to get anywhere near his presence. The whole thing is supposed to keep you in awe of this distant monarch who is not like you. And there is a sense that actually that's true of God. It's true of God. God is supposed to be holy, powerful, and quite scary in some ways. In fact, the, the verse just before the passage we read from Hebrews, it says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we call, whom we must give account. Now, if you don't find that a little bit daunting, that as you walk into this throne room, he sees you, everything about you, your worst thoughts, your worst days, the most disgusting things that you've done in your life, he knows it all. And suddenly you feel very small in God's holy presence. 
That's why when Moses went to the burning bush and started walking towards the burning bush, which was the presence of God, the voice said, take off your shoes. You're stepping on holy ground. It's why Isaiah, when he saw God in the temple, immediately said, woe is me, for I have seen the Lord Almighty. And I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm just awful, and I'm in the presence of a holy God. It's why when Jesus taught us to pray, the second line of the Lord's Prayer is, hallowed be thy name. Remembering that God is holy and different and, 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 and powerful and good. But, Sunday school level question, if the first line, second line of the Lord's Prayer is, hallowed be thy name, what is the first line? Our Father. And suddenly in that Lord's Prayer, we have a different image. Our Father. Suddenly, we're not walking into that great throne room as some stranger that the king might crush. We're walking into Charles's presence as William. I was going to say, or Harry, but that might be a different story. Our Father. Pete Gregg in the prayer course speaks about praying sometimes being like a child just jumping into God's lap. Or a child in the night crying out, knowing that dad's in the next room, and of course he'll come. That verse again, there's an awful image. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy. And, and, and that's, that's very simple. A reminder that this throne is a throne of grace. It's a throne of love. It's the throne of the one who has given even his own son for you and who will give you all the things that you need. It's a confidence that comes and it says, I'm confident in coming into his presence, not because I'm holy, not because I've done wonderful things, not because I'm important. I'm confident in coming because that wonderful God has made me a promise. Made me a promise of how it should be. Here's how one commentator puts it speaking about this verse. He says this, the preacher wants them to move past fearful prayers, tidy prayers, formal and distant prayers towards a way of praying that storms the gates of heaven with honest and heartfelt cries of human need. He does not want them to pray like bureaucrats seeking a permit, but like children who cry out in the night with their fears, trusting that they will always be heard and comforted. That is what God wants for us. And that's what this verse speaks of. But why can we have that confidence? And for that, we go back to the first part of this passage we read, verse 14. It says this, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly. Jesus, the Son of God. And it's simply this, when we pray, Jesus puts a human face on our request. We are praying to someone we know. 
Let me finish my story about the energy company. Because I just wanted to speak to someone that would listen. I just wanted to speak to someone that would listen, and nobody seemed to care. And then I got an email. And the email came from an employee of the company, and it simply said, Dear Alistair, sorry to hear you're having these problems. How can I help? 10 out of 10. He then gave me his direct email address so that I could explain what was going on to him. He put a human face on the issue, and I knew at that point someone was going to look into it, and it would be fixed. And I also had a wonderful sermon illustration as a bonus, and it got even better because he signed the email. And his name it was Emmanuel. You couldn't make that up, could you? <laughs> I just thought, he's just thinking about my sermon as well. He's wanting to help me with that too. But of course, Emmanuel means God with us. And that just is what it is. Heaven that seems so remote because God is holy and made the world, made the universe, made all things, made billions of people. And suddenly, suddenly, a human face in Jesus. Now, there's a significance here because the Jewish temple in the Old Testament was all about walls. If you wanted to come to Jesus, you had to bring, sorry, to God, you had to bring a sacrifice. And even then, you could only get so far. The, the first wall gate would let you in if you had your sacrifice. The second one said, no Gentiles beyond this point. The second, next wall said, no women beyond this point. The next one said, only priests beyond this point. And then there was, right in the middle of it, the Holy of Holies, where God was supposed to be, and only the high priest was allowed to go in there, and only once a year. God was being symbolized in His temple as being holy and, and, and pure and distant, and that's what it was all about. But the high priest went in and took the prayers of his people, and then came out and delivered the message of God and of his love. He was the mediator. And our passage starts by saying, we have a great high priest. We have someone who has gone right into the presence of God, Jesus, the Son of God. And that's why we have confidence. He's in God's presence. Now, a little bit of theology here. Our Christian faith, when we talk about the creed, speaks about Jesus coming down from heaven. It's a Christmas message. The incarnation is the, the fancy word for that. God comes down in Jesus Christ into the world. And He lives among us, and He understands what we go through. And then He dies for our sins on the cross, and He rises again. We know that bit. It's the Easter story. But the bit we often forget is at the end of it, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. And that's really important as well, because what it's saying is this. Two things happen in this gospel story. God comes down, and a man goes up. 
And that's the whole notion of intercession. It's not just that God speaks from heaven and speaks into the earth. It's not even that God comes down and, uh, and walks among us. It's that in Jesus, one of us, a human being, a real human being, is lifted right up into the presence of God. And therefore, the next verse says, for we do not have a high priest, this is when we pray, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are and yet did not sin. We have someone who gets it. Let me tell you another story, and it's also a story about me being angry and frustrated. A few years ago, in my previous church, and, and to tell the story, I have to explain, they had a railing outside just like have here, but beyond that, there's a big embankment, and the church is below it. And late one night, a car skidded off the road, crashed through the uh, railing, and was hanging off the embankment. And I got woken the next morning to be told that this car was hanging off the church embankment. I went down to the church, and I'm thinking, it's only going to take someone to start mucking around with that, or on the Friday night, and it was a Friday, some kids to start with maybe a bit of drinking and playing on it. It's going to be down the embankment. Someone's going to get killed. What am I going to do? I went to the police. This is a public safety issue. Can you do something? Um, no, sir. We've informed the owner that they have to remove the car. Okay. I came back a few hours later. Well, the owner hasn't removed the car, and it's beginning to get dark, and I'm frightened that somebody's actually going to get hurt. What can you do? I'm sorry, sir. We're going off shift. So I was frustrated and getting nowhere. So I did what most people do. I, I went to talk to somebody. I just went to talk to my neighbor, Brian. You do that. Have you got good neighbors? You know, just someone you can go talk to, and they'll, they'll listen to you, and they'll you'll moan about the gas bill or whatever else it is, and they'll, they'll just listen to you. Well, Brian listened, and he was sympathetic. He's, he, he, he's a good friend. But here's the thing. Brian might have been a neighbor and a sympathetic, and like me, you know, uh, just one of the guys, but he was also a local councillor. And he was the first name terms with the police inspector that was in charge of the, the unit down there. And so the next thing I knew, that Brian hadn't just listened to me, but he'd phoned the inspector who'd gone down and given a bawling to the police who weren't doing anything, told them they weren't going home until they'd sorted it. And he'd got the roads department to put fencing around the church perimeter, and he'd got things moving. And here's the thing here. But when we come to Jesus, we have somebody who's like our neighbor. He gets it. He's walked our walk. He's been in our shoes. He knows the temptations. But he's not just a pal we can go and have a wee chat with. He is the son of the almighty God who made everything. He is the wonderful counselor, to put it in those terms, that can suddenly get things moving, that can mediate for us. The high priest uh, in the Old Testament carried the prayers of the people to God, and then brought back the Word of God to the people. But the high priests were very, very human. The first one was Aaron, who made the golden calf. Not exactly the holy guy that always got it right. Another one was Eli. Uh, you'll know Eli from the story of Hannah, where Eli, um, first of all, he thinks this woman's drunk. He's not much of a, a counselor, really. Or a, 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 but then he does listen to her, and we find out later on Eli's got his own dysfunctional family. 
But Jesus is the great high priest. He knows suffering and temptation. He knows anger and tears. And he is at the right hand of the Father with total access to him. When you read this passage and you come to chapter 5, verse 7, it, it, it is really mind-blowing. It says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth. In fact, the Greek doesn't just say life on earth. It says life in the flesh. We're talking about bodily life with all the, the hearts and needs that, is, that, that are part of that. And he goes on to talk about, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Now, it doesn't tell us what story that's referencing, but I bet you can guess. That story is referencing what Jesus particularly did in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed to God. And here's the thing that always strikes me about the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, take from me this cup of suffering. And what is the answer Jesus gets? No. Jesus banging on heaven's door to be heard to get what he needs to deliver him from the most awful suffering, and the answer he gets is no. If you don't think Jesus gets it when you pray, think about that. And of course, it's more than that because he then goes to the cross, and on the cross, he's crying out to God, and he ends up experiencing on the cross a huge distance as if God had withdrawn himself, as if God was distant, as if God wasn't listening anymore. Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's almost as if on that cross at that point, what Jesus, who knew that intimate relationship with his Father all his life, from all eternity indeed, suddenly experiences what we deserve to experience. He experiences the silence of heaven. He experiences God turning his back. Jesus our high priest, isn't just taking a sacrifice. He's offering himself as the sacrifice. He's taking on himself what we should have experienced from God, what we deserve to experience, what Isaiah knew in the temple in his heart of hearts. He could not live in the presence of God because of his own sinfulness. And instead of that, we have the boldness to come into God's presence because of what Jesus did and to know that Jesus gets it. The big fear I suspect many of us have is not just that we aren't heard when we pray, it's that we might not deserve to be heard. Jesus, God's Son, who did deserve it, took all of that on that we might, in God's grace, come with boldness because of what He has done. And it goes on in this passage to say, that the Son of God, the Son of God learned to obey through suffering. Now, first of all, that, that blows our mind. Wait a minute, He's God's Son. He's, in fact, we believe that He's not only God's Son, He's part of this Trinity. He is God. And yet, here He is learning to obey God. What's this about? Well, let me give you a third illustration. This one's made up, but it's still good. Imagine this. A guy owns a company big company, powerful guy, and he has a son, could be a daughter, it doesn't matter, but he only has one child, and that child is going to inherit 
whole lot. But here's what the son does. The son decides he's going to get a job. And he gets a job in the company. Not as a director, but as an office junior. A male boy. And he goes and learns to work long hours for a minimum wage. He turns up on time. He works hard. He earns a promotion. He works harder. He's obedient. He's diligent. He earns another promotion. Until after a number of years, he's ended up running the company, not because he's the son, but because he's earned it at every step of the way. Now, you go and work for that company as an employee, and you have a problem, and you go into the director's room with a problem, and you've suddenly got a boss that gets it. Because he's been where you've been. That is what Hebrews is speaking about. Jesus, fully human like us. Indeed, the Bible tells us that Jesus is still fully human. And so, when we come and we pray those words in Jesus' name, it is that we are praying our confidence. We are praying to the God who loved us so much, He gave His only Son so that He will hear everything else that we have. And we're praying in the name of Jesus, who stands interceding for us, who gave His life for us, but also understands completely our humanity. Now, there is much more that we could say about this, but that simple idea as we pray, in Jesus' name, we pray to the one who understands. Forty days and forty nights we will speak about in Lent, a time where Jesus learned to depend on God and have confidence in Him and an invitation for us as we pray to have confidence too. In offering these to you, and maybe you'll have other ways of doing it, I'm inviting you to rekindle a love for meditating every day on, on the Scripture. Can I invite you also, if you are someone who has turned away from it, and many of us do, to rediscover what it means to pray. Yes, sometimes it will seem that God is distant. Yes, sometimes we won't like the answers we get or seem not to get, but we know that He hears us in Jesus Christ. For that is the promise, and that is the reason that we boldly hammer on heaven's door. We don't need erudite words or fancy phrases. Sometimes it's just saying, Lord, hear me. This is how I am, and this is what is hurting and I'm calling out to you. That's what Jesus did in Gethsemane. Amen. Let's pray.